Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Abigail Honor and Brenda Cowan. Abby and Brenda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks for having us. So to get started, for those who don't know you both, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? This is Brenda, and I'm a professor of exhibition and experience design, and I am at SUNY FIT. And I think I will leave my grand introduction to that. That is what I do, my all-consuming life's work. I am one of the partners at Larum Ipsum Corp, and we design immersive experiences for museums, institutions, and brands around the world. But both of you, for the purposes of this show, both you both do another thing together. And can you tell our listeners about that? Because we're going to dive into what you've learned doing that other thing. Fancy that. We are the podcast co-hosts of Matters of Experience. And I think the short way of framing out what our podcast focuses on is really looking at the sort of the practice, the trends, the psychology underpinning designed experiences. And we'll talk a little bit more about what the podcast involves. But Abby, did you want to add in? more about the podcasting? Yeah, I think what Brenda brings to the show is the theory, being a professor, and also a little bit of experience or a lot of experience when she worked in museums herself. And then I'm currently working, building out a bunch of experiences right now. So I bring a lot of the practical side and that know-how and also the technology. My firm is very focused in technology and media. So what's happening, what's working, what's definitely not working. So I think we balance each other out really nicely and to be able to show 360 of what's going on in our worlds. And the other thing I think in contrast to your podcast, Jonathan, is that we chat about everything outside museums as well. I think when we sat down and brainstormed what sort of we wanted to talk about, we've noticed that our disciplines are changing, that our experience design is growing as an industry, and that it now is made up of people from interior design, architecture, technology, sound, like you name it. I just wanted to let our listeners know that if you haven't figured it out yet, this is a podcast about a podcast. It's a little bit like, a, this is going to be like a Wes Anderson movie or something. <laughs> We've got a great list to talk about with y'all today, with both of you. And that list is, we're calling it Learning from Matters of Experience, the podcast, which is your podcast. And how many episodes have y'all done so far? What are we on now? 25? Yes, we've u we usually record ahead of time, so we have a few in the bag in case Brenda and I just so happen to be too busy or off on a vacation or doing <laughs> something we fun and fantastic or on right. site. So we, we have a few sort of stored up. But yeah, since our inception, I think it's 25 plus. It's and, been a and year. Going. Yeah. Yep. I think Great. we're very so, close to our anniversary, actually. Oh, okay. All right. Wow. That's super. It really does sound like you have learned a lot from that. And since... I've got the I've got the list of our talking points, but I don't know much more. I can I'm already pretty curious about it. So let's just get right into it. I'm sure we're gonna talk about a lot of things along the way, but here we go. As always, I know the list for today, but not much more. And my guests have the rest. We're learning from matters of experience, the podcast. And number one, we got six points for today to talk about. And I think these points have subpoints. A podcast about a podcast to have, has to have points with subpoints. Number one, breaking down the silos, which is the purpose of your podcast. Can you say more 
about that, how you're breaking down the silos. You talked before about practice and theory between the two of you. What other silos are you breaking down? Okay. One of the silos is the idea of the fabricator coming in towards the middle or the end of the project, because there's lots of silos we're talking about. So it's all about how to collaborate and how to bring the team together at the very concept phase, as much as is humanly possible, as Jonathan likes sometimes there's things that mitigate that. But in general, it's getting everybody who's going to be involved at some point around that table talking because when it when you're creating something and you're creating something that hasn't been done before I really want to put it out there that a lot of the work that I try to do and we try to do at Laura Ipsum is about making something custom trying to make something that's a derivative of something but hasn't been made like this before because I really believe that art you look at art you look at other amazing museums and you try to take inspiration but we all grow off of each other so really making sure that as we're trying to create something that's really truly wow and also educates entertains and hits whatever the ROI ROE whatever you'd like to call it needs to that we have everybody there because as we're designing something we want the fabric or the technicians to be like, oh, you know what, I understand what you're trying to do, but maybe you want to do it using this. And so having them there makes for better design. It makes for efficiency and you definitely save money instead of spending needlessly. So a lot of our podcast is focusing on not siloing people all the way from working with an architect at the very beginning. So not having the focus be on, haven't we got a beautiful building? What are we putting in it? But what are we putting in it? Let's have a beautiful building, but how do they all work together to make our experiences truly phenomenal? Because a lot of the times we're given a building and told create something inside, and we really wish that we'd had the opportunity to talk to an architect. So bringing together all of the people throughout the entire process and so having guests on that represent all of those different industries to talk about what they do and how to collaborate is one of the things we focus on. I think that another way of looking at this in addition is to pull back with a really wide lens. We very much so want to support and foster the idea that the various industries, if you will, that really comprise the museum profession that comprise exhibitions, that comprise experience design. We seek to break down silos in that regard as well. So in other words, you'll work with somebody in the trade show industry and you will hear the same fundamental, very universal ways of thinking or ways of functioning that you do in the museum world. And that you might hear about in folks who are doing branded experiences and so on and so forth. And it's something that I know through my teaching and it's something that I really work with my students to understand that even though there are different, there's different vocabulary across the various industries that, compri that comprise our profession writ large. But we really have some fundamental truths. And Abby and I, through the people that we bring in and through the episodes that we have, even when it's the two of us diving very deeply into a particular subject, really one of our ultimate aims is to show what it is that unifies us. I think that makes for stronger creative people. I think that makes for more fluidity in terms of growth and innovation. And yeah, I think I'll leave it at that. But breaking down the silos it happens on a micro level and on a macro level as well in terms of the work that, that we're doing. So I have to ask, because as you introduced 
yourselves as one of you is the chocolate and one of you is the peanut butter practice in theory. That's a form of breaking down the silos to begin with, just the fact that the two of you are doing this together, coming at it from different angles. That leads me to the question, how did you connect? How did you decide to do this together? <laughs> what was set the scene for me? It was a dark and stormy night. The ship was, was going down. You got on a raft together day. and you walked into history. Like, how did it actually work? So Brenda had <laughs> reached out to me to speak to her students about our practice and what we do. So I'd been doing that a couple of times. And it's quite long. I think it's three to four hours I have to talk to them for. And have like, to talk. I feel like I want, I like it to be collaborative. <laughs> and it was on Zoom to begin with because it was COVID. And I'm like, I want to make this as interactive as possible so that they're getting out of this what they need. So always, again, when we're designing for exhibitions, for museums, for whoever, thinking about the visitor, the audience. So as I was sitting there and trying not to talk too much, but explain what we do in really basic ways so that they could understand every step of the way, I was talking about light. And then Brenda would say, oh my gosh, Abby, it's interesting you mentioned light because we just covered that. And then she'd build on everything I said. And then I went away and a year later I came back and I did the same thing, this time in person. And it worked really well. Everything I was saying was seeming to synergize with their curriculum. And so I left and I was like, wow, right, Brenda's teaching at FIT exactly what she needs to be teaching them to for their practical, practically when they go into the industry. And so I was thinking, wow, she's got a whole way of educating and teaching her students that to a certain extent, Jonathan, we do it naturally at this point. Like when we think mm -hmm. about lighting, I know what emotive lighting is, where it needs to go, what it needs to do just from experience. And so I was like, wow, she articulates what we do really well. And On a good day. Uh, no, she does. You're <laughs> On a good not, day. No, no, you're fantastic. <laughs> and so I thought, I've been thinking that there was a whole in our profession and that we're underrepresented as an industry everywhere and that even our clients don't really understand what we do. And so a lot of times they'll hire an quote unquote agency, but they don't have exhibition experience or they'll hire an very well-known architect to design an exhibition and they don't know what they're doing. So I was like, we need to talk. And so I had an idea of a podcast, but I didn't want to do it on my own necessarily. And I thought that she brought other aspects that I don't and that it would be a nice compliment. So I reached out to her with my fingers crossed under the table and I called her and I was like, because we didn't know each other that well. I was like, Brenda, I have an idea because I know it's also going to take a lot of your time. I was like, I was wondering if you might be interested in a podcast. And then what did you say, Brenda? Oh my gosh. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. I'm ready. <laughs> How's tomorrow? So it was the right time. It was the right moment. She was ready. She, We both totally aligned on the fact that people, we wanted to talk about things that we thought people would hopefully enjoy and show aspects of our industry that maybe haven't been talked about before. Mm -hmm. And then we started off slow and steady. We were, we want to make it engaging and entertaining, but we were really nervous about everything that we'd say. So it took about five, at least from my perspective, five to eight podcasts to truly relax into who we are and what the podcast could be and also get the right guests on it's really important to mm -hmm. find people who are interesting entertaining easy to understand and follow it's a lot like a narrative in a museum so it well, was so, it's just, it's so much of creating a good podcast is it's so much so like creating a good exhibition it really is because with all of the complexities Abby was saying and what she and I discussed was being able to communicate a lot of the complexities and break them down in a way that got to the value of the content, but in a way that made sense for people to just see if we could create a, a kind of like a plain speak, if you will, for the listeners. So anyway, yeah, I just, I thought 
what a what a privilege to be able to talk with Abby. And it's I've got to tell you, it's a year later. It's been so amazing being able to have so many cool people on the podcast because it's just like that that game right that you play where you imagine if I were having a dinner party who would I invite and by the way I like to bring back a lot of people from the dead that is not yet been possible with our podcast but hey never say never it's the world of AI who knows but it's very much so like that just being able to dream about who could we get at the table and knock wood we've been really fortunate to get amazing people to come and to talk. And I think Abby and I have been doing a pretty good job of distilling information, keeping it informal, while still really getting at some deep content as well. I agree. I'm a fan of Matters of Experience myself. I think I've listened to all those episodes. Oh, wow. Except that one episode that I refuse to listen to. No, I'm just kidding. All of them. Oh, you got me all excited. I was like, really? Oh, no. (laughs) That that time you interviewed that woman. No, I have no... I'm just being a rabble-rouser. No, it's great. I encourage all the listeners to this show to go and check out that one. They're a great compliment to one another, although I admit I'm biased. Speaking of your guests, point number two here is about cross-pollination, cross-pollination. And that refers to the people you interview. I know you interview, as you were just mentioning, on on my side, on my beat, my editorial beat, I'm doing people who are more focused in on culture and exhibition, but I know that you are broader than that. So say more about your mission to cross-pollinate and say more about the kind of categories of people that you have on that listeners to this show can go enjoy if they go listen to your show Mm -hmm. and what you've learned from that. Yeah, so I'll have a brief chat and then you can talk about the psychology of it. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, we we have a really wide lens. So it could be museum professionals, people who represent and work at brands, somebody just designing something for maybe a pop-up, something more temporary, entertainment, spectaculars, events, anything. What else do we do? Conferences. It could be literally Mm -hmm. anything and everything. It's people who we've met or have been recommended to be interviewed. So we already know that they have experience and pedigree and have something to say. And looking at change makers, trying to find people who push boundaries and innovate and inspire us. And we'd like to bring in, you know, leadership as well as folks who can talk about the experience of being a volunteer on the front lines and working with school groups and everybody in between. Always, though, with a focus on the nature of experience and how it is that people interpret what experience is, people that are engaged in creating environments, creating moments, creating story, creating content, sharing, having communication. And I think that the cross-pollination happens in that way as well. And hopefully that's something that appeals to the listeners as well. We're really very much so hoping that we're speaking to folks who've been in the been in the profession for a long time, as well as folks who are coming in new and really looking to get a visual on what all of this could mean and what's going on. And I'd also add, we have a global perspective. Mm-hmm. I've been in America now for 25 years. As you can all tell, I sound completely like a New Yorker. You do. Fool everybody. She's wearing <laughs> black, so you've got the New York thing down. I do, I do. Mission accomplished. <laughs> so we really try to take 
tie people in from around the world. We feel very part, very much part of a global economy, a global culture. And so we work globally and we really want to get all of these perspectives. So that's the sort of lens that we use when we're selecting guests. So it could be people like Victor Terragosa. It could be Jonathan Ullman from the Mob Museum. Annie Pollard, yep, absolutely. Annie, Annie and then Monica Rowe Montgomery, Cena Barham. So a whole bunch of people, a really eclectic mix. And we're going to be building on that as well. I think as well that in a way, a reflection of Abby and myself, we like to bring in folks who can talk very practically and really get into nuts and bolts and really talk about, again, if it's business practice, if it is nuts and bolts of design, of build, of fabrication, of business relationships, and also people who can talk to the psychology of experience, people who can really get at some of the social and cultural aspects as well. And I know we're really, we're talking your language, aren't we, Jonathan? Yeah, you're definitely talking my language. And you're, I'm loving, this is one of my favorite shows so far because Ooh. you guys are, I'm, I feel like I'm watching a buddy cop show here. You guys, are, <laughs> I'm sure at some point y'all clearly, you've demonstrated that you complete each other's sentences, but there's got to be sometimes also, I'm getting off track here, but there has to be sometimes when you complete each other's sentences wrong. Do you ever have a, a tip? Do you ever have a disagreement? Um, is it, is the honeymoon still happening? Do you ever just not agree or is it just is it just as kumbaya as it sounds no, to our listeners we, right now? We look for opportunities to disagree, I've got to say, and which which is challenging. It really is. I think that Abby feels very strongly about some things. I feel very strongly about others. I think that we've got different perspectives on things like AI and emerging technologies. And we've just got really very different, I think, personal interests and personal strengths. So what I can tell you is we are going to have an episode upcoming where we're going to make a museum visit together and a space that, while not being controversial, is a space that has some... Uh, should I let them know where it's going to be, Abby? Should yeah, I was... Give it a- <laughs> make it a mystery. There's going to be a mystery visit. And That's- I, anyway, am anticipating that we're going to have a lot of disagreements about what we mm-hmm. think about the space. Because, Jonathan, you're right. Like We both respect each other very much. And uh, I honestly try to rein it in because I think Brenda won't work with me anymore. So I try to keep <laughs> myself very as tame as possible when giving my feedback. So uh, we had this idea. I thought it might be really controversial if we go to this specific museum that recently opened close by by where we are right now in Manhattan because I'd heard very mixed reviews. Right. And so I was like, oh, good. I can, in the context of being a professional reviewing something, actually speak my mind and and Brenda can tell me I'm wrong so I was, oh this will be the perfect place to go so we're going to do a site visit and then we're going to share our feelings and thoughts with our listeners so we'll see how that goes that's great now that was perfect don't say any more I'm all, I've already made a sort of a bet with myself about where it is and where you're going to go I'm sure you've won the bet <laughs> I'm guessing I don't want to know it's more fun not to know but you were just talking about disagreeing about things like AI I I am now I'm hellbent for leather to get the two of you to disagree on my show. I just want to be totally put my cards <laughs> on the table. Okay. But number three, speaking of which, number three on our list to talk about today is just that. So number three is immersion, AI, and empathy, which is the trends that you are finding. Mm-hmm. Immersion, AI, and empathy. You're seeing that in your show. Say more about that. 
especially about that AI part that you have different opinions about? We've got a laundry list of sorts pulled together of different trends and which we can then dive a little bit more deeply into, and certainly the AI. But what we can tell your listeners, the things that keep coming up again and again, and that I think are definitely universal themes have to do with, yes, immersive technology and things such as AI. But also, we're hearing quite a bit about a focus on people. And that means not just audiences and visitors, but also staff and the people who are the creators of experiences. We have a trend of talking about relationships, the manner in which museums are and should be community centers or community-centered and serving people in multiple ways. Relevance comes up a lot. The role of the curator comes up a lot. Should I mention the A word or should we hold off on architecture, Abby? <laughs> oh, that A word. Okay, yeah, you can mention that A word, yeah. Yeah, we're, talk yes, we're talking a lot about the role of the architect and their relationship with an executive director slash board when it comes to telling stories in museums. <laughs> I'm trying to not well, get too <laughs> into it. Um, we've, got a, we've got a point to talk about that later. Yeah, we could get it. Thank you for using... Thank you for using that A word. There are other A words. This is a family show. There are other <laughs> A words you could put in here. Let's avoid this. But there's also, we were talking before about, about this issue of empathy. Mm -hmm. Could you say more about how that, obviously empathy is, we're humans working for humans here, so empathy is in every conversation, but how are you seeing that as a trend? Is that something you're seeing more of, less of, different? I think that it is something that a lot of folks are talking about and viewing in different ways. We brought in Elif Gurchidin. Gosh, Elif, apologize. I do if, if I got that a little bit wrong, which I'm sure I did. But we did have a wonderful in-depth conversation about what empathy is and the idea of human oneness and how museums in particular are brilliant forums for people to engage with things such as different perspectives and engage with really difficult content as well with a certain expansiveness of thinking and a certain welcoming and sense of belonging, which get at a lot of the tenets of different meanings of empathy. One thing I can tell you is that there is, from what we can tell and from what I think we've been hearing, that there is no nice, neat, pat little definition of what empathy is. Instead, the thing that I find really heartwarming is that it's something that people are really seeking and with a lot of intentionality. There is an amazing female, female interior designer and she had designed a bar where the bartender is below the ground so that if you wheel up in a wheelchair, you are eye to eye with the bartender. That's great empathetic design as far as I'm concerned. So everybody feels the same way. So it's a case of rethinking the way that we design everything that we do to make sure that it is a really welcoming space for everybody and people don't feel like, yeah, your area's over there. So it's making sure that we're designing, thinking about everybody. But it's not easy. Empathetic design is something that you have to start thinking about from the very beginning. 
And I think you actually have to make some mistakes. I think that mm -hmm. it's through those mistakes that we learn and know what not to do. And also making sure that you're testing again and bringing in all the right groups and have the time. And time is often a luxury on at least some of the projects we work on. But you have to make sure you have the time to run everything through the different groups and have them sitting at the table. And that's people who will use the space. I think it's understanding yourself as an ally when you are certainly, and I think that we're obviously drawing reference to things such as cultural projects, but whether we're talking about history or science or whatever the case might be, the arts, I think that the idea is to be able to understand that your responsibility if you work in this particular profession is to be an ally you may not, and very rarely will you be, like or of the subject of the work that you create. And instead, your job, your responsibility is to engage the perspectives, the experiences of those who do represent, and also to be able to incorporate as many different perspectives as possible. And one thing I have to add in that I think we've been hearing about that's really important is that empathy is not always about feeling happy. It's not about feeling good all the time. Instead, it's about, I think, forming a certain synchrony, and that happens within the creative process as well. A team that functions really well together can still argue, can still disagree, can still have a lot of creative tension, but can work in syncopation and get to end results in different ways if it's through a democratic process or if it's through even a top-down structure. No matter how the decisions get made and the process moves along, empathy can happen throughout the creative process as well when there's respect, when there's trust, when it's okay to be a little bit vulnerable. So empathy, if you're with me here, happens in many different ways in the work that we do and in the work that we experience. And it's something that Abby and I have been hearing about in those different kinds of ways. Those are some, there's some great trends. I especially love the idea that empathy is trending. Wouldn't it be wonderful mm -hmm. if all around the world suddenly empathy were trending? I love that. Keep fighting that fight. Uh, okay, let's do it. It's a, gonna happen, I really think so. We're on the way, we're getting there? I do, I think so. From your lips to God's ears. There okay. we go. Little halftime show. Let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also write a review in Apple Podcasts, or you can just tell a friend to check out Making the Museum. Com. For everything about this podcast and its older sister newsletter, now back to the show. Today, we are talking with Abigail Honor and Brenda Cowan about learning from Matters of Experience, the podcast. We have six points today. We've done three. We've got three more. Next up is number four, experience designers at the table. Parenthesis. It's not all about architecture, and parenthesis. That's that A word. <laughs> Family show. Okay, so what do, you, what do you all think about that? What do we mean about experienced designers? I got so many questions about this. We could talk about architecture forever, but experienced designers at the table, we're talking about people in this profession being there to begin with, having that important role. I have a meta question about this, which is, what are we? 
from the point of view of your show, from matters of experience, uh, what is the profession that you're talking about? Experience designers? Exhibition designers? What do we call ourselves? So that, that's a meta question, but what do we mean by having experienced designers at the table to start with? To be to start with. You gotta add in storytellers as well to your okay, very strong list, by the way. Okay. We're all Garrison Keeler. Jo- but, but, Jonathan, uh, you're an architect, right? I was formally trained as an architect and then fell from the pulpit. <laughs> Into I'm a I'm a recovering architect. That's right. I'm a recovering A word. That's what I am. And a few other things, but who cares about that? What do you guys think? So it's such a loaded question because I think people like names for things so that you can train in it, so that you can hire it, so that there's that recognition, so that you know you need that at the table. So having to come up with a name for it, I think probably experienced designer is where we're up to right now. That's the only word I can think of. I'm sure the listeners will throw a million different words at us. But we do, as an industry, need to decide what that is so that we can proliferate it throughout the museum industry and throughout other industries, so that when people are looking to tell a story, and this is the key thing, if you're looking to tell a story or have a message in a space, whatever that is, and that is a huge umbrella, then you would hire Jonathan or Abby or a million other people. No, just Jonathan or <laughs> Jonathan Abby. or okay. Abby. Okay, just yeah, Jonathan just, or Abby. Got it, listeners. Now you- I like that first part was better. Let's just leave it there. And you, no, I'm kidding. There's there a couple others. others. There a couple are, others. Millions. No, there there's only millions, a few. There's a lot of good folks out there. Happily, thanks to the efforts of people like, like Brenda and others. Yes. There are more coming online all the time, and it's a great thing to do. There aren't that many people that, that do what we do, if you're talking about actual, if we're going to use this term, experienced designers, obviously. But we're the few and the proud, and there's plenty of more room in the boat, but it isn't as of yet that big a boat. There are not as many experienced designers as there are architects, for example. AIA has, yeah. I don't know, 80,000 members or yeah. something. Yeah. I'll also, but I digress. No, not a digression at all. And I'll just whip in real quick. I think that if I had my druthers, I would say experienced creators, because even design can be a bit of a restrictive word. And so saying experienced creators is really not particularly helpful because, again, you need to give people something to hold on to. Did, did you just disagree with one another? About I just disagreed term? with myself. How about that? Oh, okay. For you disagreed with two people, one of whom was you. Okay. We're, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> I think it's difficult as well, Jonathan, because if you're an architect and you're designing, let's say, a building, it could be for a business, it could be residential, it's pretty clear the parameters of what an architect does. When you leap to what we do, there are so many different kinds of experiences that we create, some of which could all be based using media, could all be projection in a space. Others could be all physical design with very little technology. And you need to have a So there's lots of different companies, some that specialize in the technology side of things, potentially interactives, maybe media, others that are expert at the physical design and physical storytelling, and then you have to hire another vendor to do the media part. So we're in a sort of hybrid situation right now as we're all growing, and so you have to collaborate with other teams and groups depending on the type of experience you're designing. So there's not such a one-size-fits-all 
which I think is why it's so difficult. It's even hard when you look at similar companies to ours, Jonathan, to work out what their strengths are, what they have in-house and what they have to go out of house for. So it just gets incredibly complicated, I think. And then this idea of storytelling, for me, it's very specific and it starts at the beginning and you have to understand how to tell those stories what do you use to tell those stories and how the visitor absorbs stories. For example, I've been making media for 25 plus years. That could be feature films. That could be a branded video. It could be something that went on television back in the day. It could be 15 seconds, 30 seconds a minute. I'm very used to telling different, telling a story in different lengths of time. And so I know that there's other people who are used to designing spaces and not used to telling stories with time constraints, let's say. We're all bringing different suitcases or different tools to the table and the job. And so I think it's hard sometimes for clients to know which sort of studio or which kind of agency or firm to hire. Part of it too, though, is that, and I wish the client's felt more comfortable wanting something that is very different than what their neighbor has created. And I think that really drives a lot of this as well. Part of what's really good about not being able to very specifically, clearly, articulately say an experienced designer is X is because the projects are so diverse and hopefully will continue to be very diverse and even more diverse one from the other. And I think that kind of necessitates not just the sort of the range of areas of expertise that Abby was talking about and that we're all familiar with, but that it also makes more of what I hope is a delightful demand on the designer, on the creator, um, to be able to speak many different languages You may not be a lighting designer, but you really should understand the basics of lighting design so that you can have those conversations and think in that way. And the same thing with graphics and the same thing with narrative, the same thing with audience studies, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, you totally hit the nail on the head, Brenda. You have to be multidisciplinary. You have to understand how the media will work, how the lighting works, how the sound works. Oh my goodness, anybody's got a takeaway from this podcast, please Mm. think about sound in your spaces. The amount of space I go on, it's bouncing all around, it's a cacophony, I'm like, did nobody think about how people are going to be hearing? There's so many different things and disciplines to think about and things you need to study and learn and understand that it's such an exciting profession and challenging profession creatively to be in. It's wonderful. But as Brenda says, the other side is you'll have clients say, can I see exactly what we want here mm-hmm. in your portfolio that you've exactly done it before? And it's super duper. I don't know how you handle that, Jonathan. I'd be interested to to hear actually. It's super frustrating that you maybe don't have the exact thing for the vision that you have for this project in your portfolio. There has to be that trust or that leap of faith that you can do it. And a lot of people are like, no, I want to see that bottle of water already designed if you're going to design a bottle of water for me. We just use AI. We just have them quickly make a bottle of water we put in our portfolio. (laughs) It just settles everyone down. It's fine. And I'm just thinking, is it milk? Interesting too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could just we could switch it to that. It's Maybe want chocolate, huh? It's all good. So while we're on the subject of objects like bottles, I can tell y'all are pros because you're dishing out the segues left and right. So the next point, number five, is collections, repatriation, and provocation. And the parenthetical there is what is happening with objects in this industry. Say more about that. What is happening with objects? What are you seeing is happening there with repatriation and 
provocation and all of that. And I know, Brenda, you've done some work, not only done some work, but written a book mm-hmm. about the role of museum objects and museums uh, well, I'll just in this add, way. So say more about this. Yeah, we just launched a podcast with Terry Snowball mm-hmm. all about repatriation, which I urge listeners to, to tune in and listen to. It's absolutely fantastic and insightful mm-hmm. and deals with this question. But this is Brenda's ball. I'm handing her the ball. Oh, my goodness. The object ball. No, I think that what we've been hearing about and talking about and thinking about, again, I keep coming back down to fundamentals and universals. And I would say that object encounters, object experiences are definitely a part of universal experience. And when we've engaged with talking about it, we have looked at objects and how they can be very powerful, right? In a number of different ways, how objects can be very evocative and sometimes not, but that objects are key devices for communication. And when they're used really well, when they are maybe juxtaposed or contextualized in really smart ways, in really beautiful ways, or in very ugly ways, or whatever the need might be, objects can really seduce people. They can lure people. They can tease people. They can tell people. They can, I believe, even listen and provoke a person to share, to want to become a part of the experience that they are within in the given moment. And I think that objects really, to get to provocation, I think that objects really can be these these items that do exactly that. And I think that when we were interviewing Terry Snowball and why that episode I think was particular, there are two episodes actually that are really particularly powerful when we're talking about objects. And yes, Terry Snowball for sure, who brought a native perspective to his work in collections at the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian and his work with repatriation to native communities. And it was really very profound to hear him talk about not just the practices and the complexities of dynamics such as repatriation, but also some really moving experiences that he's had where objects have been almost spiritual to him and have really brought meaningful moments into his work. And another way of thinking about objects that has come up in our conversations, and again, that word provocation, we interviewed from the National Justice Museum out in England in Nottingham, we interviewed Andrea Hadley-Jones, who uses objects She basically takes collection objects from her institution out into the streets, goes around on a bicycle, sits down on park benches next to people, shows them museum objects, and begins discussions. And a lot of her work has to do with people who are incarcerated, people in the justice system, and so they are genuinely provocative, subject-oriented objects. And she uses these conversations as the beginnings, the springboards, and in some cases, the heart and soul of the exhibitions that she will then produce with her institution and with communities. I think the tough thing really is objects are everything that Brenda said, but when they just sit there and they're out of context and there isn't a narrative and I don't understand why I need to care about that object, it falls flat. For example, a visit to the Met falls flat for me. There's all these amazing objects and I'm looking at them and I want to understand more about them, but I have to read a little text label and I want more. I want to understand more. I want to see their context. I want to feel. I want to love. I want to hate. I want to be happy. And 
it's awe-inspiring. The mat's an amazing place to walk around just because of the wonderful architecture and the amazing collection. For me, when you're looking at each... So as a collection, it's like, wow, look at all this Greco-Roman. Wow, look at all this. But actually, when you approach an object... What do I need to... I want to understand more of the context. Who made it? Why was it made? Why was it significant? And I think for younger kids, they're completely missed often. Or visitors who are just there for a flyby. I don't have the powerful narrative. And so I think if you completely just rely on an object to be evocative and you don't think about what the visitor is bringing into that space with them, then there's a huge miss from a design perspective and a storytelling perspective. So I'm going to I'm going to challenge you Abby. Are you ready? This is another Oh ex- yeah, let's do this. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe listeners get ready. I know. Woo, hold on to your hat. It's so not that exciting okay. of a challenge. I, but there is a By the way, here. I think we've just determined if anyone's keeping score that the mystery museum you will be visiting is now not the Met. <laughs> no. I think we've determined that. Okay. Oh, okay. we're not going to tell. Process of elimination. <laughs> Back to you in your so corner, Brenda. Dumb. Let's hear it. Ding. We're so not going to tell. No, I think that Abby and actually an exhibition you and I should visit together. And this is something I strongly encourage anybody who finds themselves in New York with a little bit of spare time. A great example of evocative objects in a very passive, very, if you will, conventional exhibition space is at the Met, and it's the Arms and Armor exhibition. It's your favorite It is my favorite. We do need to go there together. We have to really dig into this, Mm -hmm. and this is where I will just, I feel like, and I probably just bore the socks off of my students every year when I talk about and then bring them to this exhibition, but I just want to give you an example. I guess they'd be like stainless steel socks in that case. (laughs) They look pretty. You've got an exhibition here that talks about love, hate, peace, war, pageantry, pride, power. But I'm sold. If that's there, then they're doing that job work. And it's there because of the objects and because you are in, people will go to this exhibition and they're seeing swords and they're seeing guns and they're seeing basically these implements of horror and despair. And they're seeing things that are just riddled with jewels and intricacies and carving and this and that and every other thing. And I think that a lot of people do not walk away from that exhibition with what I am talking about. They do not walk away blown away by the very fact that some of these things killed somebody or killed something. And here we are pretending that we're swashbuckling around with the sword or we pretend that we're putting on the suit of armor and so on and so forth. And yet the thing that I will point out is people will go to that exhibition and they will play. They will pretend that they're putting on the suit of armor. You will see people pretend to draw back the crossbow. They will pretend to shoot the gun. And it can be really disturbing and it's fascinating. And what I think is really interesting is when we look at people looking at objects, when we look at people and listen to people talk about touching objects, when we capture people's opinions and reflections and emotions about objects, we can start to learn a little bit more about what exactly is happening. And so places such as the Met have their place. And don't get me wrong, I, there's, I think that there are missed opportunities there for sure. But there are some things that they really get right. And the story, um, the objects tell the story in this particular exhibition. You mentioned touch, though. Yeah. Hugely important. When you have a bunch of objects you can't touch, you can't play. To learn, you have to play to learn. Missed opportunity. Yeah, you have to. There's no play at the Met. 
The other thing I want to talk about is collections. Mm -hmm. When you look at this tiny percentage of objects that are on display, really at any one time, they're not shifting them out, the permanent exhibits that often, and how much is away in storage somewhere? How do we tap into all of those incredible objects that you can't put out? How do we use technology to enable people to access those Again, in a fun and engaging way, not just for research. How do we bring those to life for people? Because they have phenomenal stories from our past, things yeah. we can learn from now and enrich, enrich our future. And so really thinking about not what role a museum has in collecting now and for the future and also repatriating objects, but also maybe thinking about how they can use their objects in different ways as well. Maybe it's a touring temporary exhibition, maybe something online. Let's talk about, we've got the example of the 9-11 Memorial Museum, where those objects, each and every single one of those objects is important, is meaningful, and has a richness to it. And making those objects as accessible as possible via searches that you can do while you're there in the in the galleries and to find, explore, identify anything specifically that you might be looking for in addition to how often they're able to change around objects. But they've got a pretty tough job and they've got a pretty complex collecting necessity, really. But I'm also thinking about the Tenement Museum. Uh, yeah. And the Your Story, Our Story, which is an entirely online exhibition of objects that have been co-created. They have been contributed by the public. And it's a brilliant way of collecting towards story, towards meaning, towards message from the, if you will, the end user's perspective, but in a way that doesn't challenge the opportunity for having things accessible and available. And it does that d double job. It actually yeah. invites the community in so that the museum reflects the community it serves, which I think is just fantastic. It's like a win-win. And we're not even talking about objects and the question of authenticity, <laughs> right. which is another one that's come up. We're not talking about what we mean by the word objects, actually. There are mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. collections that have no physical, tangible things in them, but they mm -hmm. are still collections. But that's a subject for another day. Mm. Abby, you were saying you'd maybe like to be with Brenda in that arms and armor exhibit. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, part of me wants to be with Brenda in that arms and armor <laughs> exhibition. Another part of me does not want to be with Brenda in that Don't arms be afraid. and armor exhibition. I think I should just, I think we should all just meet there I think and, we should. and see what happens mm -hmm. with maybe with microphones. I've but, had cocked there. Serious. I promise. <laughs> I'm fun. Promise. There, there you, okay. <laughs> maybe right. that's why you like it so much. The cocktail. <laughs> no. It's Pavlovian. Okay. <laughs> but segue alert, Abby, you said before that one of the issues is that museum often is short on play. Discussion number six, our last point for today is number six, being playful, seeing the larger context and owning it, all caps with two exclamation marks. And these are your takeaways for the listeners. So I think we're going to close out here on, on some of these big things that you've learned, things you want, you would like your listeners to your show to take away, things I'm sure you'd like your listeners to this episode of this show to take away. Let's talk about it. What are the things you want people to do? How do you want to change them? Where to begin? This is a, we've got another kind of laundry list of the things that we think are really critical for people. And 
I think that being curious and I'll just pull from the conversation that we just had about objects, however we choose to define what objects are, and a ability, an ability to be curious, to explore, and to play, I think is, it's not just a good thing. I think that it's your responsibility. If you're going to do the work that we do, if you're going to work in this industry, if you're going to be a professional, if you're going to be a steward of this work and of this profession, I think that you have a responsibility to be curious and to really learn how to listen and to really learn how to look and to love the ability to look and to listen. And I don't mean just in terms of when being a part of experiences and a part of events or exhibitions or whatever the case might be, but I also mean within the process itself and working with others, working with your clients, working with colleagues. So I'm looking at Abby and I'm just, I want to let you dive in as well, but those are curiosity, exploration and play, I think are paramount. I think from a professional perspective, it's really important to not be in fact in all your life don't let fear dictate and drive you it's one of the easiest things to come to and the hardest things to beat if you can beat your fears it's phenomenal and so things like ai that we're, you know, everybody's talking about this that and the other i've got to be worried about this you've got to be worried about that it's like there's a moment where you've just got to understand that this is where we're going and don't be scared. It's all going to be okay. I'm an optimist. I'm really sorry. So I'm like, mm. it, it might not be exactly what you think it's going to be. And it's going to be different to where you are now. But you have to be happy with change. I have two daughters. One's really happy with change. The other one can't stand it. So I'm very used to the two sides. And you have to roll with change and try to be excited about not knowing what's around the corner because none of us really do. And that's what it feels like to practice what we do is there's so many things that are constantly changing and you feel like the footing's going underneath you that you have to be comfortable there. And so that's from a professional perspective, open to learning where it doesn't have to be a new technology, but it has to be bringing the staff in that are familiar with that technology, learning from everybody who's around you, including your client. And I think it's about looking out and not focusing too much on on yourself in a way. Mm -hmm. It sounds like an oxymoron. No navel gazing. Yeah, yeah. So it's about being fearless. I know, again, really easy to say, very hard in your practice to do. And about being enjoying what we're making like you have to enjoy going to a great museum and playing and being involved and learning and so let's use that as a baseline I think there may be people who end up in our industry by some sort of default but it's like really remember what we're doing mm -hmm. and what we're trying to the end result we're trying to leave in our visitor which is to come enjoy whatever enjoy means often not positive could be something harrowing we're showing them go away be moved and be affected so it affects you and you affect other people. It's about learning and growing. Again, I think right now in our society, we're one way or we're another and we're in our little safe zone. It's about being in the gray area. And it's very uncomfortable for people because we want a left and a right. I think it's an empathy zone. We mm -hmm. want to harken back to that, or at least that's my take on it, that there is really this zone of empathy. And it's not always very comfortable, just like Abby's describing. Did we mention imposter syndrome? 
Inbound not, not yet. No. Not yet. Okay. So this is another thing that, you know, Abby and I feel really strongly listeners should think about. Imposter syndrome is something that comes up, and I certainly know this as an educator and working with folks who are coming into this profession new or from other places, such as architecture or wherever. And I think that recognizing that you are going to make mistakes, that you're going to get knocked down, or that fear will be a part of your process, and self-doubt, that those things should not dictate how it is that you go about the course of your work. And, and these are really they're not small matters, these things. So I think that it's important that we put that out to listeners as well. Basically, bounce back. Bounce back. Have faith. Have some courage. Believe in yourself. Suspension of disbelief is huge. And we can go back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, which is the client is going to expect you to draw a picture of this thing on day one. And you're going to sit at the table telling yourself secretly, we'll be lucky if we can draw a picture in six months or whatever the case might be. And if you're lucky, it'll be six months before you start drawing pictures so that you're really getting it right. You want an answer when you haven't even formulated what the answer is, or even mm -hmm. sometimes they haven't even made the question out. So it's, it is a lot about, yes, it's a lot about having courage mm -hmm. and understanding that there will be things that won't go as you've anticipated and that you are creative and creativity is my job's problem solving. That's all I do every second of every day. That's literally it. I'm like, oh, I wish somebody had told me. That's just as a mother of two teenagers. <laughs> oh, that's easy compared to the work. <laughs> so it's about problem solving and coming up with solutions. And I haven't met a problem. I haven't been able to come up with a solution and nobody listening will either. There are always solutions, creative solutions. And sometimes they're better than the original. I think aside from the imposter Syndrome, understanding that there are going to be mistakes happen when you're dealing with multiple teams all working towards the same goal and just being understanding and flexible and then embrace new people. I would say over the last 10, 15 years, we've had a bunch of new disciplines come into what our industry and what we do. And you need to understand where they're coming from and first so that you can actually incorporate them into your practice. And then I think we all need to own it. As, an, as a professional community, it's time to say who we are and what we do. And if you see people trying to do what we do or being paid to do what we do, it's okay to say, actually, that's our discipline. That's exactly why you need to hire us. Jonathan, with your podcast, getting your voice out there, our voices out there, and really start to establish a community. I want us in the New York Times, right next door to music, theater, film, and then experience. And that's where we should be. We need people reviewing our work. We need critics so that people are paying money. They're paying tickets. They're going to see what we make. It's about time that everybody else saw that and recognized all the hard work everybody listening to this is doing to educate, entertain, and preserve culture. I keep thinking about some of your most recent, your own podcast episodes as well, Jonathan. I can totally plug for you everything from value engineering and looking at it from a positive mindset and having the courage to value engineer, as I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to really see opportunities and to see things in very different ways. And certainly if it's towards cost cutting, but really identifying what value looks like within your projects and trimming towards that, whatever that might mean. 
But, oh, what was the other one? Oh, the exhibition. The exhibition. Show about the exhibition journal. Exactly. Exhibition, the journal from yep. the National Association of Museum Exhibition. What a very important and brilliant publication that is. And towards what Abby was talking about, the brilliant forum where people offer critique of exhibitions and that really shape our industry. And I know that the journal is going to be going through some changes. I'm not sure exactly what those are. I'm trying not to be a little nervous about it because I think it's probably one of the most valuable resources in our industry today. Quite honestly, hopefully it will continue going as strong as ever. But yes, I think it's, it is interesting in a way going back to where we began. I keep thinking about how meta this is because a lot of what I think Abby and I are talking about are also things that you've touched upon in practical matters in your own podcast as well, Jonathan. This, I, for a minute there in our conversation, I felt like our discussion had become a group therapy session and I was getting <laughs> like a I was getting like a really good vibe. Then for a little while, it turned into like a labor union meeting. And I was like, fight the power. And then it's, I'm like, wait, am, am I an imposter? Uh-oh. Uh, I don't know. We just covered so many different subjects. This has been absolutely terrific. I had no idea we were, I should have known. I had no idea we were going to touch on so many things. My, my head is spinning. I love it. It's time to do a little recap of what we just talked about. We've been learning from Matters of Experience, the podcast with Abigail Honor and Brenda Cowan. And we talked about number one, breaking down silos. Number two, cross-pollination. Number three, immersion, AI, and empathy. Number four, experience designers at the table. Number five, collections, repatriation, and provocation. And last but not least, number six, being playful, seeing the larger context, and as Abby said, owning it. How did I do? Did I get all that right? Did we do a good job? It sounds good. Oh, we just scratched the surface. We're going to have to have a sequel or a prequel <laughs> or a trilogy. I don't know. We'll get to <laughs> anyway, this has been terrific. This is better than a cup of coffee for me. Brenda Cowan and Abigail Honor, it's been great to have you on the show. But <clears throat> if listeners would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that individually? Is that email, website, LinkedIn? Your podcast site. What's the best way for people to yes, yes, reach yes. out and touch you? Yeah, to reach out to me, go via LinkedIn. I think that's the quickest, most efficient way mm -hmm. to get me. Yeah, I think likewise, LinkedIn. We'll get some coordinates in the show notes for people who would like to make it short and sweet. Okay. Well, I think we have covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time in exchange. I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for this show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn also under Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R. I'm always looking out for new links in or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. You all can Google it. That's it for this episode. Oh, by the way, did you know this podcast has an older sister? It's a very short newsletter three days a week under the same name. One quick insight each day for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe to that at the same place, makingthemuseum.com. Big subscribe button in the menu at the top. So again, thank you very much to Brenda and Abigail. It was wonderful to have you on the show. Yeah, this was this fantastic. Was such you. a treat. All right. I'm loving it too. I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.